still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every Good morning. I don't need to see everybody on a Saturday morning. So uh, welcome, uh, and welcome to uh, everybody who's joining us via live stream. I know we have many who are at home watching uh, today, and so uh, thank you for being here and being a part of this. It's good to have Shane with us, certainly a familiar face for our family in Christ, and uh, appreciate him so very much. Uh, before I get into it this morning, I got a great announcement uh, to share with you. Uh, David and Marina Sielkas are actually in the States. Uh, for those of you who have been following their story, they were actually in Ukraine and uh, were there when the war started, and it took a while to get out, but they were eventually able to get to Romania, and uh, through the aid of our family in Christ and many others, uh, they've been able to make their way now to the state. So we are certainly happy to know that they are back home, if you will. Now, Marina, this is, this is not her home. Uh, Ukraine is her home. And so, uh, but for David, this is his home. And uh, so we eagerly look forward to seeing them. And they will be here uh, from what we understand. Uh, not sure exactly when or what their plans are, but it's good to know that they're in the state. So it's good to begin with some good news. Uh, second good news is what we're enjoying today, new chairs. Uh, we had quite the reception party to unload the truck the other day, and a lot of people changed their schedules at the last second. It was originally supposed to be an afternoon chore. It uh, became a morning and early afternoon chore, and we had a wonderful crowd here that came to uh, unload the truck and to bring all those chairs in, and uh, actually, we knocked it out pretty quick, so it was kind of fun. Uh, not too many injuries. <laughs> we had a couple, but, but everybody uh, did well, and I know uh, Lindsay and Michelle and Megan appreciate everybody's efforts so very much, and we appreciate Lindsay, Michelle, and Megan for all the work that they've done to uh, kind of spruce things up around here. And so uh, I just wanted to stand up here before you, Shane, because I haven't had the chance to use the new lectern uh, or to speak to everybody in the new chair. So I just wanted to do it first before you got to do it this morning. So that's how that works. This morning, we're also doing something new that we've never done before. And, and, and that is to kind of focus our attention on topics that are of great relevance, but also sensitive topics that require a lot of care. And we couldn't think of anyone that would be more suitable to share with us this morning uh, than Shane as we talk about the subject of dealing with suffering, dealing with grief. And so we respect our brother on so many levels, but we certainly respect him for his example and his, his guidance through this subject. And so we appreciate Shane. Uh, for his willingness to come and to speak to us, to share with us. And I know that this is uh, something that is on the hearts of many uh, in our family in Christ and even those who are associated with us or family and friends. And so we wanted to talk about it, and we want to spend some time talking about it, listening to what our Heavenly Father has to say about this subject. And we appreciate Shane's guidance, but we know Shane is also guided by the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit has certainly given us direction in this subject. Our Father, our Heavenly Father, is certainly acquainted with grief, and so He understands, and He knows us, and He knows us even far better than we could ever imagine or know, and so we want to listen to Him this morning, and we appreciate Shane for guiding us this morning. What Shane's going to do is he's going to speak to us in this first hour. His first topic is till death do us part. And then we'll take a break 
and then we'll come back together uh, for the second gathering this morning. And so thank you for being here. Thank you very, very much for being here. Let's begin with a prayer, and then we'll turn it over to Shane. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your children. And dear Lord, we, as children, crawl up into your arms this morning to seek your care and to seek your comfort and to seek your guidance. And dear Lord, we come before you today as children who are needing your guidance to help us through challenging times. And we pray, dear Lord, that you will help us to keep our eyes and our ears and our hearts open to what you have to say to us through your spirit. We thank you for our brother Shane, and we pray, dear Lord, that you will guide his heart and guide his mind and his thoughts today as he shares with us his thoughts on this powerful subject. And we pray, dear Lord, that you can use us to be ambassadors for you in this world, a world that is certainly grieving a world that is dealing with great challenges. And dear Lord, if it's possible, use us as your ambassadors to help others. Help others endure. Help others in the way that they can not necessarily overcome because some things are hard to overcome, but to deal with. And to dear Lord, help others, more importantly, to see you and to see that you're a God of hope. You're a God of comfort. God of security and peace. And dear Lord, that's our prayer this morning, that you'll be with us, that you'll be with us as we learn and grow together. Thank you for this time, dear Lord, and thank you so much for our family in Christ who has a desire to not only learn more, but to do more in helping others. And we ask all this through our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, when Phil uh, originally called me and asked me if I might be interested to come and, and talk with you about the subject of grief, he, he talked to me, first of all, in terms of um, how to give help to those who are grieving, how to comfort those who are grieving. And uh, after thinking about it for a while, I, I talked to Phil again, and I said, well, I'll tell you what, I can talk about what it's like to grieve but I'm not sure I can talk so much about how to help those who are grieving. Although my hope is that just by talking about my own personal experience, that it might, it might help you think about some things you could do that could be of some encouragement uh, to others. Uh, <clears throat> part of the, the issue for me is that when I think about trying to help those who are in grief, I still feel very much like I'm in need of help. And so I'm not quite ready in, uh, in my experience in all of this to say, now here's how to lick it. I can just describe what it's like to go through it. And then maybe in the process of that, uh, encourage, uh, encourage those of you who are in a similar position in life. The other thing I want to say is that... Um, uh, this is truly not a topic that I feel like I have any expertise in because if there's anything I have learned over the course of the last few years, it is that everybody has a story of grief of one sort or another. And in fact, my wife Christy and I used to talk a lot about the fact that our story is really quite simple. Uh, cancer is a very simple disease. It's a ruthless disease it's ruthless in its simplicity. And it's an impersonal disease. It's not like Christie's cells uh, woke up one morning and said, boy, we really dislike this person. Let's, let's do her some harm. It's nothing like that at all. It's a very impersonal kind of thing. And just even in the number that we have here this morning, I know that I have to be looking at some people who have experienced deep and profound hurt of a most personal nature, a relationship that's been betrayed, some kind of emotional harm that's been done to you. And that's far more complicated in many respects than a grief that comes from, from losing a spouse. Just this past week, uh, I, I sat down with a very young couple from church <clears throat> and listened as a young man who just graduated high school 
expressed his dis- disappointment and grief because uh, he had, for a long time, had a dream to serve in the armed forces. And then after doing that, to uh, work as a lineman. And then from out of nowhere in his senior year in high school, uh, d- was diagnosed with epilepsy. Had a couple of seizures. And as a result of that, was disqualified, at least for a time, from even trying to serve in the military and from getting some of the licensing he'll need to get to be a lineman. And he's devastated. And he's just a kid, you know, he's just 19 years old. So that's what I mean when I say that we all have a story. We could, we could go around the room this morning and share some kind of story about grief and loss, either that we have experienced or someone very close to us has experienced. So my ambitions this morning, very modest. I'm, I can tell you one person's story. And maybe in the course of that story, uh, you'll see some things that are uh, similar that you've experienced as you've gone through grief or a loved one has gone through grief. The other thing about dealing with grief and suffering is that this is a problem that not only has to do with how we feel about our loss, but also how we think about our loss. So there's an emotional aspect to this, and then there's, a, there's an intellectual aspect to this. So that's kind of my plan for the one-two punch today. In this first hour, I want to just talk about what, in my case, grief has been like emotionally. And then uh, after we take a little break, I want to talk with you about some things that may help us to think through the topic of suffering and pain in a general sense, so we can hopefully have some help to uh, address this challenge from both sides of the equation. So it's also just great to see, first of all, this many people out for any reason on a Saturday morning. Uh, If we were going to talk about something just super fun and exciting, it would be amazing to have this many people out. And not only are you here, you're here to talk about some really tough stuff on Saturday morning. So I I appreciate that. Your presence is a great encouragement, as all of my trips here have been to me personally. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about my own situation. This, uh, This was my... In heavenly love abiding, no change my heart shall fear, and save his And they say it in the tone of voice to suggest, how are you married to her? And uh, I fully agree with that tone of voice. You know, here we're in SEC country, so let's just say I, I outkicked the coverage when it came to, uh, to Mary and Christy. Christy and I went to Florida College together. I was a year ahead. As a matter of fact, her first moment on campus, uh, this gigantic uh, van from Illinois pulled into the Sutton Circle, and I was on a student service organization and went to help her unload and uh, hit it off instantly with Christy and with, with her mom and dad. Uh, and we were very good friends in school, and I was very attracted to her, but always felt like she was, she was way out of my league. Apparently, I had forgotten about this. Apparently, I asked her out once. Um, she was <clears throat> dating a friend of mine, and they were in one of these on-again, off-again, torrid relationships. And so during one of the off-again moments, I asked her out, and she said yes, and then they got back together, and she canceled the date. But uh, apparently it so traumatized me. I don't even remember that that happened. So, uh, so then we, uh, we, she graduated FC, I, I graduated FC, and we went our separate ways, and then we ended up many years later uh, finding ourselves in, in Middle Tennessee, uh, living in the same area. And uh, she had a job where she, she traveled a lot for work. And uh, late January of 2010, she was over in Memphis doing some work. And I was in Nashville, and we had an ice storm. And uh, I was supposed to go to a friend's house. 
and uh, play this new game called Wits and Wagers. I don't know if all, any of y'all ever heard of it. And I tried to make my way to their house, and there was just so much ice uh, that I, I couldn't make it. So I had to turn around and go back home. So they set it up with a computer. So I had my computer at the house, and they had one. There's a, so there's a laptop with my face hovering on the table playing this game. And somebody took a picture of that and posted it on Facebook. And uh, Christy and I were Facebook friends, but neither one of us were on a whole lot. But because it was a blizzard and we were both stuck at home, she saw that she happened to be on Facebook and she saw the picture. So she asked me about the game and then I told her. And then we ended up like chatting for a couple hours that night. I think we all know what game Christy was interested in though by doing that. So, uh, but we ended up chatting for a couple hours that night. And uh, I remember thinking, boy, I always enjoyed getting to hang out with her. So, uh, we ended up chatting every night, and then I asked her out. Our first date, the first day we could actually both be in town and be together was February 13th. That is a date fraught with peril for a first date. If you're an Office fan, that's the date that Ryan and Kelly had their first date, and uh, much to Ryan's chagrin. But anyway, uh, we just uh, seemed to hit it right off and picked up in our relationship and... Uh, we were married on August 29th, 2011. Interesting, both of us, neither of us had ever been married, so I was just about to turn 44, and she was 42, and we were a little apprehensive when you're that old, you've been single all your life, how's this going to work out to, uh, to be married? But, uh, but it ended up working out pretty well. So Christy's job started to get very, uh, very stressful. She had a she had a boss who was, I think it turned out actually to have some substance abuse issues. And Christy was feeling a lot of pressure and uh, aggravation. So when she started having some, some symptoms of uh, gastrointestinal sort, we actually assumed that it was job stress. And uh, Christy was one of those people, healthy all of her life, never been to a doctor in 20 years. But finally, I said, why don't we go talk to the doctor? So we went to the doctor, and he said, let's do a CT scan. It didn't show anything. Fortunately, he said, why don't we just go ahead and do a colonoscopy, and we can just make sure he thought maybe she was developing Crohn's disease. So uh, two days before our first wedding anniversary, we went to go get a colonoscopy thinking, well, we know it's not cancer, so it's probably some kind of colitis or Crohn's disease. And our doctor came back and said, surprising results. You have a tumor. She had, she had rectal cancer. And uh, the next day, if you've been around cancer, you know there's staging where they determine how advanced it is. And the next day we found out it was, it was fairly advanced. And we also found out that she had a couple of spots on her lung, which looked a little suspicious, but are also not that uncommon uh, from past bronchitis or things like that. So they said, we can't even really biopsy those, but we'll keep an eye on them. So then Christy went through a regimen that uh, up to that point in my life, I'd only heard about. I'd heard people talk about radiation and chemo. Had no idea what it was like until I actually lived with somebody who went through it. So she had uh, chemo and radiation to shrink the tumor. And uh, she had surgery. And the surgery seemed to go very well. And then she had follow-up chemo. <clears throat> and Christy got to do... Uh, the greatest thing any cancer patient gets to do. She finished her chemo after the surgery and uh, in an oncology clinic, when you finish all of your chemo, you get to ring a bell. And hopefully that means you're done with it. And our doctor told us there is, of course, the possibility this can come back. 
the longer you can go without a recurrence, the better your chances are. And after a year, the opportunity arose to come to uh, Valrico, to move down to Florida, again in connection with the story of, of suffering. My dear friend and teacher, uh, Marty Pickup, passed away suddenly and unexpectedly from a heart attack. And uh, we went to talk with our oncologist because, as you can imagine, the last thing we wanted to do was to come to a church that's just gone through a horrible trauma and then bring more trauma in. But our oncologist assured us that he thought we were in good shape and thought it was very unlikely that the cancer would return. So, uh, so we moved to Florida, and we got to what would have been Christie's two-year scan, which was going to be the big one. We were, he had told us, if you can get through this one and the cancer is not back, then um, you're probably in good shape. And at that two-year scan, we found out that those spots on her lungs were growing, and there was more of them. So it turned out that her condition was what is called metastatic from the very start. It had spread. And we were told that she had uh, two and a half to three years. There's not much they can do. The best hope is just to try different forms of chemo and keep pushing the ball down the, the road as long as you can. Well, it ended up she had over four years. My wife had a very strong constitution, which undoubtedly helped her to deal with her husband, first of all, but also helped her to withstand treatments. She hardly ever had any issues with all of the chemo that she got, and she was hit with a lot of it. Uh, we actually took a trip uh, back up to Tennessee uh, with the goal of, we had exhausted all of our chemo options <clears throat> here at, uh, or down at Moffitt, and so we were gonna take a trip up. Uh, some of you know the name Minnie Pearl. Some of you know her real name is, was Sarah Cannon. And there's a cancer institute that is named for her up in Nashville that uh, had some clinical trials that looked promising. So we went up and, and uh, so the plan was to go there, see if we wanted to sign off on this, which we did. And uh, our doctor could not have been more encouraging, not so much about the prospects. We, we knew what the odds were, but just hey, let's, let's see what we can do to fight this thing. And then our plan was to go over to Gallenberg, which is uh, where we had honeymooned, take a few days to relax. Then she would go back and start this clinical trial, and I'd figure out how to balance living in Florida and being with my wife in Tennessee. But when we got to uh, Gallenberg, uh, her breathing started to really... Uh, labor. Everybody knows about oximeters now because of COVID, but we had one to kind of check her blood oxygen level, and it was starting to decline rapidly. <clears throat> so we had scouted out a uh, hospital just in case and uh, rushed her over there, and she actually tested positive for the flu. So we kind of thought maybe she had just had a respiratory problem because of that, and once we got past that, we could get on with the plan. But I noticed day after day, they kept having to, to turn the oxygen up. And uh, I remember at one point, uh, I had, well, I was not able to sleep hardly at all while I was with her in the hospital. So somebody given us some money so I could uh, go to a hotel and I remember as I left her to go get some sleep that our eyes locked. She locked her eyes onto mine. And she gave me a look that for all the world is the look you give someone when you know you're about to leave them. But I'm also prone to dramatics. Christy used to always accuse me of being a Harlequin romance novelist in my spare time. So I was hoping I just made this up, but I didn't. Later she told me, as often was the case, she figured things out way before I did. 
And she knew, she knew this was going to be it. And as it turned out, if we were to have scripted what her last few days were going to be like, it couldn't have been better because by being back up in Tennessee, where I had preached for eight and a half years and where she had lived, we were accessible to many dear friends who could easily come and be with us. And quite frankly, even people for whom it wasn't so accessible. There's a friend I have who was a kid where I used to preach years ago in Indiana who lives down in Tampa now. She just decided to load up her four little children, drive straight through from Tampa to Gatlinburg just to be with us. There was a lot of stories like that that happened. And of course, it's beautiful up there. It was our favorite place. Our view out of our hospital room even was, was just beautiful, you know. So I don't think we could have planned how to spend our final days together better than what they were. And on October 23rd of 2018, very early in the morning, she passed away. So that is my story of loss. It is one of how many ever people are here this morning? 70, 80 people. It's only one of 80 stories in this room. We all have our story. And we're just a fraction of the many stories of loss that are told every day. But I can just share with you what the experience was like for me. And maybe there's some things that will resonate with you. And also maybe for those of you who have wondered, having not experienced this kind of close and personal loss, what is it like for a friend to go, to go through this experience? So here's some things that as I've thought about it, I've had to come to terms with what I have lost. I want you to go with me to the first chapter of the Bible, to Genesis 1. Nothing profound here at all, uh, or shocking here at all, I should say. We know these verses very well. But I had not thought about them in the context of loss until I went through my own loss of Christie. So in Genesis 1, in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In the ancient world, it's very common for kings to put statues of themselves up to make sure everybody remembered who's in charge. So those images are to represent authority. And God says, my statue, my image, my likeness that will represent my authority is humanity. And you even see that in the detail here, when right after he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, the next phrase is, and let them have dominion. That you and I, made in God's image, are representatives of his authority, made to rule under God's authority over creation. But there's more to this special status that we have. It is not just simply reflected in our humanity. It is reflected particularly in our creation as male and female. So verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so to be made in the likeness of God is to be made not only human beings, but it is to be made male and female particularly. And our Lord Jesus Christ said that this very creation points to the relationship of marriage. So over in Matthew chapter 19, when the Pharisees bring to Jesus the question, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus says to them, have you not read? Then Jesus says this in Matthew 19 and verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, this is the word I hadn't thought about a lot, the therefore, and you all have heard this old phrase, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you should always ask what it is, therefore, right? So do you see the connection from the previous verse 
made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, what our Lord is saying is, inherent in creation as male and female is an order, a purpose, a direction toward marriage itself that is a part of what we are made for. In our creation in God's image, we're created not just as individual human beings, but as male and female made for a relationship. A relationship so close and so intertwined that the Bible describes it in the terms that Jesus does. Or that if you go back to Genesis 2, that Genesis does. When it says at the end of Genesis 2, that a man and a wife shall become one flesh. It is that close a relationship. And because we're made in God's image, and because God, as we learn in the Bible, himself is love. In fact, God is the Father, Son, and Spirit in an eternal relationship of love. Part of our being made in God's image is to be made for a relationship. We're made to share love. And made to share love particularly as God has made us male and female. And so therefore, it is that close relationship, that uniquely close relationship that is lost when a spouse passes away. I've, I've had, as you have had, many losses in life. A couple of months ago, I started working with a counselor and she just sort of asked me to tell her my life story. And then I was really depressed after I got done because like, wow, I just kind of sat down and listed out the different losses that I have experienced. I lost my mom unexpectedly 22 years ago. She, had, uh, she woke up one morning and, uh, and had a stroke. I, I lost my granny who helped to raise me 12 years ago. Uh, she lived a very long life. She just kind of wore down, but, uh, but she passed away. By the way, my good brother Bruce here knew my mom and knew my granny, so it's always a cool thing to have a connection with him whenever I'm around him. Uh, so I, I've gone through losses like that. I lost, I've lost very close friends, as you have, like my dear teacher Marty, the brother who performed mine and Christie's wedding ceremony, uh, passed away unexpectedly uh, a few months after she did. Our flower girl at our wedding passed away just two months after Christy did. And these were all very painful losses. But none of them were of the magnitude of losing Christy. Because when I lost Christy, I lost a person that the Bible says... I was made for, as she was made for me, to share in a very special relationship that is described in terms of a one flesh relationship. If you just think about the way Genesis describes it, first you have Adam, that's one flesh, and then from him, Eve is made, that's two, and then the plan in marriage is for the two to once again become one, to become so close, they are actually a part of each other. And to think about what that is like, think about what it would be like to lose a part of your own body. My mom was born blind in her right eye. And then eventually she developed glaucoma in it, uh, to the point that eventually she had to have her eye removed. She had to have a part of her body removed. And it was difficult surgery. It was traumatic surgery. It was dangerous surgery. And it took her many weeks to recover from it. She lost a part of her body. When I lost Christy, I lost a part of me. But not just a part of me physically. Not someone just simply that I was united with physically, but someone I was united with in every way. And that doesn't mean that I'm less of a human being now, any more than my mom was a less of a human being when she lost her eye. 
But in my mom's case, it did mean that without a properly functioning eye, she couldn't fully do all she was capable of as a human being. And since as a human being, I'm made for relationship and particularly a marriage relationship, now without Christy, I'm not less of a human being, but I can't quite do all that I'm made for to enjoy as a human being is made for. And that's why losing a spouse is so different from losing a friend or losing a parent. Christy truly complimented me in ways that I bet the couples represented here today can identify with. How many of you are in a relationship where one person is always cold and the other person is always hot? You'll never guess which one I am as I constantly have to wipe sweat here. Essentially, in our marriage, most of the time, Christy used me the same way that Han Solo used the Tauntaun to help keep Luke warm. I was just a large, smelly beast that could keep her warm, and otherwise, that was it. I bet some of you have a marriage in which one person tends to be introverted and one tends to be extroverted. Maybe one person tends to be more practically minded and organized. One person tends to be impractical and disorganized. In becoming one flesh, Christy and I became a team. But more than that, we became part of each other. Certain expressions I never used before, I still use almost three and a half years after her passing. Certain things I was never interested in before. I'm interested. I never heard of Chihuly till I started dating Christy. Now I know about these weird decorations made out of light and glass and stuff. You see what an expert I am, but at least I have an interest in it now. Christy had never watched one professional wrestling match until she married me. And then, so you, it wasn't exactly an even trade-off here in the, the culture that we shared with each other. But my point is, something amazing happens in marriage. And it's not like synthetic parts of a machine that can be easily replaced. Yesterday, I was heading to go to get in the pool at the YMCA, and my car battery was dead. No problem. I got jumped. They took the old battery out, put a new one in, and I was able to get up here okay this morning. But that's not what it's like to lose a spouse. It's not exchanging pieces of machinery. It's an organic relationship in which a man and a woman become a new third thing, one flesh. And therefore, it is impossible to lose that person without also losing a part of yourself. To illustrate, after my mom's eye was removed, she got a prosthetic eye, which she loved at family gatherings to take out and gross all the little kids out in the family. You see part of where my issues come from for my mom. But see, that's the thing. She could take that artificial eye out and no problem. Pop it right back in. She could get replacements, pop it in and out, no problem. On the other hand, I have a friend right now who desperately needs a kidney transplant. And a few years ago, one of our members at Valrico donated one of his kidneys to help a friend at work. See, that's different from just simply taking a prosthetic eye out or putting one in. That's a part of you. And it's not just going to be the kidney. Other tissue is going to be involved. And the same for the person who receives it. It's a much more traumatic thing. And when you think about the one flesh relationship of marriage, which at its foundation has to do with the physical connection, but which so far transcends that, then what it means is that when I lost Christy, and when those of you who have lost a spouse, when you lost yours, as you know better than anybody, you lost a part of you that you can never, ever get back. You remain what remains behind as a part of them that you never lose, which is what helps you get through the part you've lost that you can never get back. But that's what I lost. And I just can't stress this point enough. In this loss, I'm not unique. Like I said, the other day, I sat across from a table at a coffee shop 
of a 19-year-old kid trying to process, thinking he has no purpose in life right now. And his dreams have been shattered because of epilepsy. That's at a loss. And for him at his age, that's about all he can possibly handle and then some. You've had your losses as well. And the main point I could just say in terms of dealing with grief is the first step is to truly comprehend as best you can exactly what it is you have lost. Because until you fully get that, you'll never be able to go on to the next step. A year after Christy passed, I went to go see a friend of mine who's also a counselor, and I said, it's been a year, and I just want you to sort of look under the hood and give me an idea how I'm doing, because I really don't know. So here's the first thing he gave me to do as an assignment. He said, I want you to go home, and I want you to make a list of everything you lost when you lost Christy. So wife... But like in my case, I lost my best friend. I've never had like a best guy friend. I've always had a bunch of really good friends, but there's no Watson or Holmes to whichever one I am. I haven't figured that one out yet, but whichever one I am, there's not the other one. There's no Skipper Gilly. I guess I would be the Skipper in that one. But uh, so I've never had like that best friend, just a lot of good ones. But when I married Christy, I had my best friend finally. That's what I lost. Not only that, my favorite person, I lost her. I lost someone who put so much beauty in, uh, in my life. She was an interior design major in college, so her house just looked exquisite. I still take credit for it. Anytime people, hey, your house, so well, thank you. I worked hard. No, I didn't do anything. You know, Christy, Christy did all that. I, I married somebody whose way to relax when they came home from work was to cook I mean, come on, this is crazy. So I lost a lot of things. I lost my best editor. Can't tell you how many times I'd be working on some project and I'd say, hey, Christy, listen to this. And she'd either say, sounds good. Or she would say, I don't understand. And then I would say, well, what I'm trying to say is, and then she'd say, well, then just say that. So I was my editor. I lost her and many, many, many other things. That was the first step for me, at least, to try to come to terms with this, is to realize there is a reason this is as traumatic as it is, because I've lost so much. So it's been three and a half years. I can tell you that at the one-year point, which would have been the end of October 2019, I actually felt pretty good. And then... March of 2020 hit, and COVID hit, and I was stuck at home alone, surrounded by all of my wife's beautiful designs, surrounded by her, and for those of you who have gone through loss, you know that it felt very much like uh, falling into a chasm when COVID hit and you were stuck at home all alone. And I know that over the last three and a half years, I have dealt with changes just in the way that I react to things that are so weird and hard to explain, except to those who've gone through similar losses. Like for example, whenever my phone rings and it's somebody from church I expect I'm about to hear some horrible tragedy has taken place to the point where a lot of times I don't answer. I just wait to get the message, which it is almost never the case. But that's sort of my knee-jerk reaction now. I can't watch movies or TV shows that create a lot of tension. I can't handle it. I have to turn it off, turn to something else. Like even some comedies... Like, I'm not sure I could handle the entire Scott's Tots episode right now of uh, The Office, for those of you who know what I'm talking about. I can't stand to watch any kind of story that involves violence against a woman. I just cannot handle it. I can't process it. 
I am uh, edgier, jumpier than I ever have been in my life. I think that has improved maybe a little bit over the last year. For the first time in my life as a preacher, over the last three and a half years, I've had to tell people who wanted to talk with me about a problem they were facing, I can't do it. I just don't have the emotional reserve to handle helping somebody else out, which is, is heartbreaking. I have to tell somebody that. And especially during the pandemic, there were many weeks and months that went by that I felt very lethargic. Quite honestly, if I had not had the obligation to go teach and preach, I'm not sure I would have gone anywhere. I remember once uh, during the pandemic, maybe even just before that, I was at the Y one day and I just had my iPod on to uh, shuffle. And there's this old song by Shenandoah that Alison Krauss redid. I mean, I knew, I, I knew this song, but I just hadn't thought about it and probably hadn't even listened to it till after I lost Christy. And the song is called Ghost in This House. It says, I don't pick up the mail. I don't pick up the phone. I don't answer the door. I just as soon be alone. I don't keep this place up. I just keep the lights down. I don't live in these rooms. I just rattle around. I'm a ghost in this house. I'm just a shadow upon these walls. As quietly as a mouse, I haunt these halls. I'm just a whisper of smoke. I'm all that's left of two hearts on fire that once burned out of control. You took my body and soul. I'm just a ghost in this house. And that's very much how I have felt, especially through the pandemic and uh, being alone. I do very much feel like a ghost in the house. So some of you who've gone through loss have experienced some of those emotions uh, because there are some, I think, common emotions that no matter what the loss is that you're experiencing, you go through. That's just what it's been like for me. So uh, this is not an, any kind of advice for anybody else. This is just how I have coped. Steve, you may want to click it forward to the next slide. Thank you. Uh, it won't be a great surprise when I say that I feel many nights like Jacob wrestling with the Lord. And uh, some nights I feel like I get soundly whooped. But I will say this, that just as when morning came, Jacob felt a blessing from God. Uh, I, have, I have felt those. Um, another thing that's helped me at least to try to cope is Christie's great example. She was a very strong and formidable woman. And whereas I have a tendency at the first sign of trouble or obstacles to just, okay, I'll do something else. She would say, no, we can do it. And I can't tell you how many times through the entirety of her illness that she would just simply say, you do what you have to do. So many times over the last three and a half years, I've just said to myself, you just do what you have to do. Think about her. And while I don't have a best friend, I lost my best friend, I do have a great many friends who have helped to bear my burdens and fulfill the law of Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 2. And it's been very important for me to learn that I don't have to be the burden bearer. I can have burdens that other people bear. And that's what God has made his family to do. And, of course, I have cherished uh, so many great memories of my time with Christy. I don't think that I am unlike many of you in this situation, that in the first year and a half through the pandemic, if I were to do a ratio of tears to laughter, it was definitely far more tears than laughter. 
But I have noticed over the last year, especially, that that ratio has started to change a bit. And I have many moments, uh, frequently through the day, where something will pop into my mind about Christy that just makes me laugh. And then even sometimes cry at the same time, which is hard to pull off, but some of you have been there and you know exactly, you know exactly what it means. And I have come to learn that the opposite of joy is not grief. It is apathy. And the reason that I've had so much grief is because I had so much joy with Christy. So the opposite of the joy that I feel is not grief. The joy and grief actually share something in common, and that's affection. I had so much joy in my marriage to Christy because we, we shared such affection with each other. And I have so much grief because we shared so much affection with each other. But that's the common element, is affection. So what that means is, my joy is always going to be tinged with grief. But mercifully, my grief is always going to be tempered by joy when I think about Christy. So I can just tell you one story that kind of sums up our whole relationship. Uh, as I said, when we got to Gatlinburg, things took a change for the worse very quickly. And I knew that Christy had all along indicated that she wanted to be cremated. But other than that, we had not talked at all about anything. And so my last conversation with her, the Monday morning before she passed away, I said, Christy, um, we've not talked about how you want to handle everything. And... I need to know from you what you prefer. And by this point, because of the lung issues, she couldn't really talk. She could barely whisper out something. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to grab your hand, and I'm going to list some options. And when I list the option you want, you just squeeze my hand. So I said, do you want me to take your ashes and sprinkle them somewhere you love, like the Smoky Mountains or, or Hawaii? No response. Do you want me to take your ashes back to Florida and, and uh, put them in a mausoleum? No response. Do you want me to take your ashes back up home to Illinois and bury them there? No response. Do you want me to just keep your ashes at home in an urn? She squeezed my hand. And then she looked up at me and locked her eyes on mine and smiled really big and said, to bother you. So that was her last words to me. And I treasure it. It kind of tells you everything you want to know about how much fun we had together. Now, before I, uh, before I conclude this part, I, I realize not knowing everybody who is here uh, and not knowing who might be watching or who will listen later, there's a good chance that there might be some people who are single and uh, who may think uh, there's nothing here for, to apply to my life. In fact, originally this slide was going to be application for singles, and I thought that might look like I'm taking applications for singles. So that's, that was not the point of this slide. This is applications for singles, so for singles. So here is the application. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want to read verse 25 through 28. Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, there are various interpretations about what Paul means here in 1 Corinthians 7, 26, when he talks about this present distress. I have no idea really what he had in mind, other than it was something that was so troubling that in Paul's view, 
the otherwise blessed institution of marriage in this case would find itself under such pressure, it would be better not to marry. And then Paul says this in the next couple of verses. This is what I mean. This is verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings. Now we understand if you took each of those statements out of context and made them like absolute rules, it would be contradictory to what the Bible says elsewhere, that marriage is good, doing business is good, grief is okay. So what does Paul mean when he gives these instructions? Well, I think the key is the end of verse 31. For the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, I think what Paul is saying is, times are tough, and time is short, and you need to live your life and carry out everything you do in life, marriage, business, grief, in view of eternity, rather than just in view of life here on earth. And so a key practical lesson to all of this is, if you're a single person, here is something I don't think I ever thought about when I was looking that I would encourage you to think about. Marry someone you're willing to suffer with. Now, I don't mean so much by that that you're going to cause to suffer. You will, by the way, we all cause our spouses to suffer because we sin. But what I really mean is, you need to think about marrying someone that when adversity comes, that's the person you want to suffer with. I remember early in our, in our marriage, we lived in an old house. And we smelled this terrible smell coming from not even a basement. It was like an old-time cellar. And so what we thought is that maybe an animal had snuck in under the little wooden door and couldn't get out and died. Boy, do I wish that's what had happened. I went down to investigate, and our, our sewage pipes had ruptured, and our basement was full of raw sewage. And I told Christy... And she came down and helped me for hours clean out the basement. And we talked about this a lot afterwards. As we both stood there, ankle deep in poo. Am I allowed to say poo here in this? I mean, I'm using this. We've got our new chairs. We've got a new podium. I don't want to desecrate the place here. But <laughs> as we were standing there ankle deep, I remember we both said later, we knew that's the person I want to be married to. That's the person who, when times get tough, doesn't run and doesn't flinch. They're willing to stand there shoulder to shoulder. Because the words in sickness and in health, in prosperity and adversity, till death do us part, are not mere platitudes. They are descriptions of real life. And you want to do life with somebody who's willing to stand there side by side with you and see it through to the end. So, marry someone to suffer with, knowing that this life is temporary. And that there is an eternity that as you suffer together with each other, that you can enjoy. And that's what I think Paul is saying here. Have a heavenly perspective on marriage. I remember when we did our premarital counseling, even though we were both, you know, old people, we still wanted to get some advice. And my dear brother Max, who, did, who passed away shortly after Christy was one of our elders, and he came over to talk with us, and we sat down, and almost the first thing he said was, marriage is temporary. And I thought, what are you talking about? It's, 
Lifelong. It's a lifelong commitment. Till death do us part. That's what he meant. It is till death do us part. And heaven is eternal. And his point was, you have to think about marriage from an eternal point of view. How can you both help each other get to heaven? And as it turned out, our marriage was far more temporary than we had possibly considered. But that advice was great. I'll share one last experience I've had that was terrible and wonderful all at the same time. And then we'll take a little bit of a break. So when the pandemic hit and I was all alone, I thought, okay, there's all these books that are supposed to be these classics and I've never read them. So I would rather talk about books I haven't read, but act like I have read them, but looks like I'm going to have to read them. So I decided I'm going to start working through some of these books. So one of them is a work, a poem called The Divine Comedy by Dante. It's actually uh, three poems. <clears throat> Dante was Catholic, so it's a, it's a visionary trip through hell, the inferno, and then through purgatory, and then up to paradise or heaven. Dante lived uh, around the year 1300. When he was a young man, when he was nine years old, he, he met this girl, still not much different in age from him, whose name was Beatrice, Beatrice, blessed. And he was captivated by her in a way that is sort of romantic, but far beyond that. It wasn't just a crush. There was something spiritually mesmerizing about her. He had one other encounter with her. They just happened to pass in the street. But to Dante, she was the purest of all women. And she died very young. She was 25. So the way this poem is set up, the first third of it, he's guided on his tour by this old Roman poet named Virgil. And Virgil also takes him through most of purgatory. But at the very end of the middle section of purgatory, he sees Beatrice. Beatrice, and he's so excited. And she looks at him with scorn, and she rebukes him. And he's taken aback by it. And she says to him, Dante, when I die, Rather than seeing my life and my beauty as a signpost to God, I'm roughly paraphrasing here, when I turn to dust, your faith faltered. Why? And he tells her, when, when you died, I was crushed. And she says to him, but don't you see that the beauty in this life and the love in this life are supposed to point us to eternal beauty and love. That's what you should have been looking at all along. And then he sees her again. Let me just pause. So I'm in my local coffee shop, innocently reading my book, not expecting that I'm about to get this sledgehammer right between the eyes. And I am weeping, sobbing uncontrollably. And one of the baristas comes walking by, hey, Shane, and then just like kept on going. It's like, this is too awkward. I'm not going to get in the middle of this. And then in the next section, Dante sees Beatrice again. But now he sees her in the presence of Christ. And when he sees Beatrice in the eyes of Christ, he says, my heart burned for her a thousand times greater. And that's what I've learned. My wife was beautiful, and I love to show that picture. I love to show it off. But I think sometimes I allowed myself to be so enamored by Christie's physical beauty 
and by the love that we shared that I forgot what my friend Max warned us. This is temporary. And I've had to learn what Beatrice tells Dante. This is supposed to point you to eternal beauty and love with the hope that I will see Christy again and I will see her in the eyes of Christ and she will be more beautiful than I can imagine. And then my heart will burn a thousand times greater for her in eternity. And that is a view of marriage from here to eternity that doesn't mean that suffering doesn't hurt, but it means that with the hurt, there is also hope. Paul says we do not suffer as those who have no hope, and we do not rejoice as those for whom this world is the only hope. We rejoice as people who have a hope that even transcends this one. Well, all right, why don't we take a break? We'll come back and uh, then we'll shift gears a little bit and talk about how to think through uh, grief and suffering. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in north central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before Him.